0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Frey. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
1: So, Léonard Otier became so much a part of French court in the 18th century that many people actually believed that he was a member of the nobility. He was not. But, as coiffure to Marie Antoinette... He was afforded access to her that even most nobles would not have had. And after her ladies-in-waiting, for example, would complete the long codified ritual of dressing the queen, Leonard would enter Marie Antoinette's apartment and create the hairstyle masterpieces that have really become a hallmark of the young ruler's iconic image. I think most of us, when we think of Marie Antoinette, we think of her giant stacked hair. The one with the ship in it. Yeah, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, and that is all because of this one person. And that iconic hair is very, very tied as well to the image of debauchery and corruption that Marie Antoinette was associated with as the French monarchy came under attack. Uh, Her hairstyles to many not only looked ridiculous, but they were also very expensive And they were dangerous. Uh, Their sheer size made them difficult to manage. There is story after story of them just having to take things out and change hair to get in and out of carriages. Uh, And in a time when candles provided all illumination, they were huge fire hazards. There are also many stories of people getting their hair ignited or catching on chandeliers as they walked around. Like, basically, they were just a problem. Uh, and not only was Louis XVI's queen spending massive sums of money to keep her hair styled this way, we're going to talk a little bit about how much Leonard was able to charge for some of these. But other women of France were, of course, following her lead to try to keep up with trends. So Marie Antoinette was skewered in the press not only for her own loose purse strings when it came to pursuing fashion and style, but also for the financial irresponsibility that her style choices inspired in other women of the country. And the man with the comb who created all of that fur- is the topic of today's episode and the next. It is a two-parter. Before we get into this, we have to talk about the term hairdresser. Sure, <laughs> uh, because it's one of those things that in the uh, modern parlance, I think most people that do hair would like to be called stylists. Okay, um, hairdresser has in some salons, not all. Hairdresser has become more like the person who does. It's almost like the assistant who handles rinsing prep Mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff whereas stylist is the person that actually decides what your hair is going to look like you know color there's it's varied there's a whole different hierarchy of words it's not consistent even salon to salon some stylists don't even care just let me do my (laughs) let me do hair and i'm good uh but just in case anyone is wondering about that because you may go to someone who says i'm not a hairdresser i'm a stylist in this context Hairdresser was pretty much the term, Mm -hmm. and we're going to use that. So don't think that we're in any way demeaning anyone who designs colors, et cetera, hair. But Leonard called himself a hairdresser. And as we'll learn, his call to hairdressing was not because he thought he was, you know, an artiste that needed to do it. He thought stupid people can do this and make a ton of money, so I'm going to do
0: it. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to talk about Leonard Autier. Léonard Alexis Autier was born somewhere in the five-year span between 1746 and 1751 in the southwest of France in a town called Pamiers. His parents made their living as domestic servants, but even from a very young age, Léonard longed for more than life in a rural town could really offer him.
1: And he learned his trade in styling hair as an apprentice in Marseille and Toulouse. And then he spent time in Bordeaux crafting the latest hairstyles. But his work never really caught on with the upper class there. And he was unwilling to style the hair of women farther down the social hierarchy. So he decided that he was going to leave Bordeaux and he set his eyes on Paris.
0: He moved to Paris in 1769 when Louis XV was still king. And when the popular hairstyle for women consisted of curls arranged close to the head, called a tête de mouton, or sheep's head. Autier settled into lodgings in a less than stellar part of town at number 15 Rue de Noyer. He paid for two weeks' worth of lodging and then set out the next morning to try to make his way as a gentleman of Paris. I sort of love this, because in the beginning, this was definitely
1: a fake-it-till-you-make-it situation uh he had walked into paris with basically nothing but was in his pockets and a comb uh he couldn't afford wig powder so he used some baking flour some leftover baking flour to whiten his hair and he carefully prepared these garments that were secondhand uh so that they would look really clean and tidy and artfully assembled there's even discussion of how he very carefully tied his cravat so that all of the pleats were perfect and that he looked completely assembled and he put on a sword, which was common for French noblemen at the time, and he went out to seek his fortune. And according to his account, and we're going to talk about his his memoirs uh, a little bit later, people in the street just stopped and commented on what a, an attractive and fine-looking gentleman he was.
0: <laughs> he made his way to the business of a Monsieur Le Gros, who was a well-known hairdresser in Paris at the time looking for a job. LeGros had written a book on hairstyling called The Art of Hairdressing, which Leonard had read. And in fact, it was one of the things that inspired the young man from the country to start pursuing a career in coiffure.
1: But this was not a case of admiration. This harkens back to what I said earlier. Autier felt that if someone such as Le Gros, who was obviously in his mind a buffoon, could cultivate a successful career for himself based on dressing hair and complimenting rich women, then certainly he could do the same thing. And he managed to establish an industry contact in Le Gros. They talked about him possibly working there. Uh, and that was thanks in part to a friend of Autier's named Frémont, who was already working for the established hairdresser.
0: Leonard felt that he would quickly surpass Legros, and he told Fremont that he believed he would be, quote, the foremost hairdresser in the universe within three years. This was a bold boast for anyone, but particularly someone who had arrived in the city the day before with almost nothing, but... It evidenced the boastful and often overconfident personality that he would really become famous for.
1: Yeah, this was a man that did not lack for confidence. (laughs) Like to the point that as I read his memoirs and the biography that I read of him, I was really quite envious. I was like, man, it must be like a delight to walk through the world with like absolutely no (laughs) (laughs) self-doubt. and with the help of Fremont, Léonard quickly made additional friends and he started doing the hair of one of the actresses at Nicolette's Theater for a role as a fairy. And this was initially sort of a fun thing where he was like, oh, let me do your hair. It'll be fun. Uh, but his concoction, which made use of jewelry and flowers and stars as accent pieces in this really lavish hairdo that also involved a little bit of architecture to defy gravity, won the actress, who had been doing okay but not exactly having a breakout star moment, won her a great deal of attention quite quickly. And in turn, Leonard also was given a lot of attention.
0: The young hairdresser moved immediately out of his lodgings in the more dodgy part of town so he could live nearer to the theater's performers. And within just a few days, he had become such a sensation that he gained the attention of Etienne Francois, Duke de Choiseuil. While Leonard was glad to make a connection so closely tied to the king, he also knew that court politics could easily shift and any given connection could just fall out of favor. So he also sought to expand his connections to the nobility. In his posthumously published memoirs, he wrote during this time, quote, greedy for gold and fame, I may very well decide the destiny of my whole life within just a single stroke of my comb."
1: Yeah, he was very astute in realizing that he needed to, he couldn't count on any one stroke of luck to propel him into the life that he wanted. So he really sort of cast his net net very wide. He was really quite shrewd as a businessman. And we're going to talk about his incredibly speedy rise to success. I mean, already he's been in France for days and he's getting attention from very, very uh, high up people. But first, we're going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. had a rapidly growing clientele in the theater. Numerous actresses and dancers demanded to have him perform the same magic on them that he had done on the actress who played the fairy at Nicolette's. And incidentally, he seems to have also had a romantic involvement with that actress as well. Uh, And he was well aware that part of his appeal was that he was handsome and charming and that some of the women who were seeking his services were also interested in him as a potential romantic interest.
0: But even as he shot to fame inside just a couple of weeks in Paris, there was also a bit of jealous sabotage afoot. Legros, the established hairdresser who Leonard had visited his first full day in the city, was jealous of all the attention that this new upstart was getting. Le Gros attempted to launch a smear campaign against Leonard's morals, suggesting it seems a tendency to engage in impropriety with his patrons. But it seems like, at least to some, this rumor only made the handsome Leonard more appealing. Yeah,
1: they're like, oh, really? I could get my hair done and maybe have a little action. I would like to book an appointment, please. <laughs> so he really, I mean, it was insane how quickly he became super duper popular. And one of his new patrons during this time was the Marquise de Langeac, who was to be a part of Marie Antoinette's arranged social circle when the new Dauphine arrived from Vienna. Langeac made clear to Léonard that she was interested in introducing him to the French court and promoting him as a hairdresser there, but on the condition that he really couldn't be dallying with dancers and actresses if he wished to move into higher society. But there's really a pretty strong suggestion that what she was really indicating was that she would like to sort of be his, his patron and have a romantic relationship with him. But if that were going to be the case, he could not be involved with other people.
0: Wattier's memoirs indicate that the two of them began a sexual relationship almost immediately. He did not, however, sever ties with his actress paramour. The Marquise seems to need constant appointments with Leonard, but as described in Will Beshore's biography of Leonard, quote, according to one onlooker, her hair never seemed so badly arranged. <laughs>
1: yeah, she was having sometimes two appointments a day, one in the morning and one in the evening. Hmm. And yet her hair didn't never look very good. <laughs> Uh, Laljac introduced Leonard to Madame Duberry, the king's favorite. And it was actually an invitation from Duberry that first granted Leonard an opportunity to visit Versailles. And at their meeting, she made an appointment with him to visit her at her home the next day.
0: During that appointment, Duberry, who had just exited her bath, explained to Leonard what a massage was and asked that he give her one a request that he obliged. When he later told the Marquise de Langeac about it, though, she became quite jealous and told him never to go to Dewberry again.
1: Yeah, apparently this is a time when massage was not like a thing yet. It was Uh like, oh, this is a new thing from the Orient I've heard about. (laughs) Would you like to try giving me a massage? It's unclear whether there was sexual activity or not. It's entirely possible, but we just don't know. Sure. Léonard, however, had already made his Versailles contact, and with the imminent arrival of the new Dauphine Marie-Antoinette, he was not about to let that go. So when he first saw the young Austrian not long after she had arrived in France, it's funny because he was not exactly bowled over by her. Uh, he didn't find her especially attractive, although he thought that she had potential. Uh, her hair, which had been styled by a rival to Monsieur Autier named Larseigneur, was especially disappointing.
0: And according to accounts of other royals who had been involved in negotiating the marriage of the Austrian princess to the future king of France, there was definitely going to be a need for a good hairdresser. Marie Antoinette had a very high forehead, and her hair grew, quote, badly, which probably means it was thin. I'm glad you clarified that, Holly, in the outline that you wrote, (laughs) because in my head, I just imagined it being full of calyx. (laughs) Uh, Regardless, this was considered a defect. Yeah, she she definitely had a high forehead. And and,
1: uh, yeah, it's unclear what badly means, but it seems like probably she just didn't have like a really lush head of hair. And there will be some hair loss later in the story. So that, that to me links up a little bit. And as the new Dauphine became integrated into life at Versailles, Léonard's friend and paramour, the Marquise de Langeac, became one of the princess's favorites. As lady-in-waiting, Langeac had much closer access to the future queen than most people. And Langeac and others, including Madame du Berry, had mentioned Léonard's skills at coiffure to Marie-Antoinette. But initially, she retained Larseigneur as her hairdresser for a time.
0: Eventually, the princess decided that she would, indeed, retire La Seigneur with a lovely pension and instead take on Leonard as her hairdresser. She received him for their first appointment in her bedchamber, which was outside of palace etiquette. Only ladies were supposed to attend the princess in a place of such privacy. The Dauphin insisted, however, but also ensured that a number of her lady attendants remained with them to appease members of the household who were concerned with scandal.
1: Yeah, as as most people that have read much on Marie Antoinette know, she was really put out by all of the the really codified rules of existence, particularly for a high ranking royal at Versailles, which she can thank. Louis XIV, for, he kind of put all those in place, but she was just like, I just want to talk to a person in my room. Can we just do that? But Leonard won the heart of the future queen almost immediately by addressing one of her concerns. So she did not like wearing bonnets. She thought she looked better without something covering her face and that it was important because of her status to be for people to be able to see her face when she went walking around. But as this was late autumn, if she wanted to go for a walk in the gardens, which was one of her favorite activities, she would need to wear a hat to ward off chill. And at this point, the hairdresser came up with a novel approach to solving this problem. So he decided he would incorporate bits of sheer lightweight fabric into the hairstyle itself to give her hair a little bit of covering and warmth without hiding her face.
0: The style delighted Marie Antoinette, and it became a common request for her to make of Léonard. Incidentally, it was actually this use of fabric and trim interwoven with the hair that put previous podcast subject Rose Bertin in front of the princess. Léonard suggested her as a supplier of such adornments so the Dauphine's style stayed fresh and new.
1: And having pleased the future queen so greatly really cemented Autier's position at Versailles. The Dauphin assured him his position was secure, and she soon came to rely on him for his opinion, not just on her hair, but on anything involving style. He was named valet du chambre for the princess, which expanded his already impressive reputation.
0: Finding himself in constant demand, Léonard decided to extend his good fortune to his friend Fremont, who he took on as an assistant, but he called him his lieutenant the two men knew that the favor of the royal could have an abrupt end, but together they thought that one of them could bolster the other one. And it was shortly after this partnership
1: was struck that Léonard called suddenly to style the Dauphine's hair for a trip to Paris— found himself needing to sober up for the job. He and Frémont apparently had concocted this plan where Frémont was going to be his assistant and they had this long dinner where they talked about the future and they had a lot of drinks, which apparently Léonard was not normally a big drinker. Um, so he was suddenly like, I gotta go do some hair. Uh, <laughs> um, so he rapidly drank several cups of coffee and it was at that appointment that he went to that he allegedly created one of the fashion trends that is now commonly associated with late 18th century style that is the use of ostrich plumes to accent very, very tall hairstyles. Uh, Léonard claimed that the coiffure he gave Marie Antoinette that evening was more than a yard high from her chin to the top of the hair. And while this was a gamble, uh, in fact, when he told Frémont about it, he was like, what did you do? (laughs) We're going to get fired already. Uh, The Dauphine actually loved it, and soon sky-high hair covered in feathers was all the rage.
0: Which had an effect on ostriches. (laughs) Uh, we are going to talk about Monsieur Leonard's decision to open a school for aspiring hairdressers. But before we do, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break.
1: While Léonard was happy to have found himself in the unique circumstance of having achieved success so rapidly, he wanted more. And he remained ever aware that fortunes linked to Versailles could, as we've said a couple of times now, change in an instant. So his next step in becoming the dominant name in hair in Paris was actually to open a school for hairdressing with his friend Frémont. And not only would taking students earn additional income, but becoming the teacher of the latest hairstyles in Paris and Versailles added yet another new level to his fame and status.
0: The school enabled Leonard to help himself out, along with two of his brothers, Pierre and Jean-Francois, as well as a cousin named Villeneuve. He sent for his siblings and cousin to move from the country to Paris to assist him, and through the Académie de Coiffure to become hairdressers themselves. He was also able to use his connections to get them regular jobs in the households of Versailles. And while this habit of using his
1: success to help others in his circle, and particularly his brothers and bring them along, uh is admirable, it also causes problems in the historical record. And here is why. All of the Autier brothers began to use the name Leonard at various times, presumably to capitalize on the popularity of the name and to manage multiple bookings. So Leonard could just send one of his brothers and they would show up and say, hello, I'm Leonard. I'm here to do your hair. Uh Which is great business sense. It's like franchising your siblings. (laughs) But, of course, this makes the movements of the true Léonard Autier a little bit tricky to pin down. And that's actually going to come up in the second episode in terms of a death notice.
0: So it is well documented. The Dauphine, Marie Antoinette, loved divertissement. One of the activities she became interested in attending was a masked ball. She first learned of them through her brother-in-law, Charles-Philippe, the Count of Artois. And she got the idea that the Count and Leonard should plan such an event secret from her husband and the rest of the court so that she could attend one in disguise and experience anonymity. And
1: Léonard, of course, uh, he anticipated this, did the lion's share of the planning. But the ball came together, and the Count of Artois, the Marquise de Langeac, and the Dauphine all attended together. And this actually ended up being an occasion where Léonard further ingratiated himself to the future queen, aside from simply having thrown the party in the first place and having become really one of her trusted friends. Uh, one of the other men that was in attendance at this masked ball had figured out who Marie Antoinette was. Uh, many people did not but this one man did. And he was being a little bit aggressive in his attempts to woo her. He, you know, Leslie was taking liberties in terms of putting his arm around her waist and pulling her very close to him. But uh Leonard witnessed this and stepped in. And this actually got him into a brief fisticuffs with the man's friends. So these two men came at the hairdresser with clubs. And according to Leonard's account, which we will mention again, he was very confident and his memoirs really talk up what a great dude he was. Um, But according to his account, he disarmed one of these men and he used the club that he took from them to fend off the attack. And the original offender, who turned out to be the Duke of Chartres, fled after jumping from a window.
0: It might come as a surprise that in the midst of all of his appointments and romantic dalliances, Leonard actually married one of the kitchen assistants of Versailles named Marie-Louise Jacobi. The couple had a daughter together, but it seems that the marriage itself was more of a convenience and security situation for both of them. Leonard established one more tie to Versailles, even if it was on the lower end of the social hierarchy there. And Marie-Louise got the financial security of having a rich husband, even if they lived very
1: separate lives for the most part. Yeah, they would go on to have more children, but initially they had one very quickly. And Leonard really continued to be incredibly shrewd about bolstering his position in a variety of ways. So, for example, uh, comet talk was all the rage in 1773. There had been a warning that a comet was going to hit France, and it was a, a, a big discussion. There was fear and excitement. And while no comet hit France, there was a comet observed in October of that year. But all of that sort of comet furor uh, inspired Leonard to create a comet hairstyle for the Dauphine. And she loved it so much, she wore it to the opera that night. And it was a huge hit. It garnered just a plethora of compliments, and it launched an obsession with comet-themed merchandise in Paris. And it turned out that in something akin to a pre-internet social network marketing scheme, though, Leonard had masterminded this whole thing. He had paid people at the opera to talk up Marie Antoinette's outlandish hairstyle and create good buzz around it. I cannot stress what a shrewd businessman he was. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, he just, he found a new way, it seems like, almost every day to be like, I need to solidify my position even more. I know I'm getting super rich and I'm very busy, but I want to be
0: super richer and even busier. (laughs) So on that note, we are going to pause here with Leonard truly at the top of his game. Obviously, he did not stay at Versailles forever. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about how his career as the queen's hairdresser wound down and his other business ventures, and the ways in which his life changed in the face of the French Revolution.
1: And now I have listener mail. Yay, listener Ooh. mail. It's his listener gift. What? And we got um an email from this person before we got the gift in the mail saying that that he was trying to arrange something, but it is from our listener, Roland, and his wife, Galena. It says, Dear Tracy and Holly, thank you for the entertaining and educational show. I love it, and I share it with so many friends. My wife, Galena, is from Bulgaria, uh, from an area called the Rose Valley, and after listening to your recent show on roses, I asked her to bring something special back from her latest trip. Enclosed are two vials of pure distilled rose oil from her hometown-ish area of Kazanlak. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Galena had to be sure it wasn't fake rose oil, so one is already opened uh, and resealed, and it has her Bulgarian seal of approval. So thank you so much. They us they're these beautiful little tiny um, wooden sort of vial cases, and then within them is a little, within each of them is a little vial of oh. rose oil. And they're absolutely beautiful. Those are beautiful. And they're super cool. So this is, uh, we're in a rare situation. Tracy is actually in the studio. She's in Atlanta this week. So she, real weird. she gets the gift right here as we're sitting here. I'm so excited. It's really cool.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Uh, so yes, thank you so much, Roland and Galena. It's absolutely beautiful. And I just, I'm like debating, do I keep this at my desk for when I need a whiff of something del- delicious or should I take it home? Yeah. I might stay at my desk for a little while. I get to do both. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh Yes. So thank you so much. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at housetoworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. And you can come and visit our web- website, which is missedinhistory.com. And you can look for uh, this episode, which you probably already did, unless you're on iTunes or Stitcher or some other app that feeds it to you. Uh, and you can find all of our other episodes that we've ever done, including show notes on the ones that Tracy and I have worked on. So come and visit us at